I'm glad you're here. My name is Robin. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we've been in a series in the, the book of Acts now since September, and we've been breaking it up along the way, um, and we're trying to learn, like, how early Christians interacted and talked about God with others as this movement was beginning. And this series, specifically, it's part two. We're calling it God Speak, and it's actually trying to tackle just that. A lot of Paul's interactions and, and others that were with him, they were, they were having to navigate some tricky waters. And so we're going we're gonna to get to that here in a minute. Um, but I wanted to, to start with just saying, uh, I just, so we, we went on vacation uh, earlier in May. That's why I haven't been around or, or preaching lately. And I always find when, I, when we go on vacation, when we come back, that you, you know how it is. Like there's the checkout before vacation, and there's still the checkout when you get back from vacation. And I'm still somehow between checkout and check-in this morning. Um, but as I've been just reflecting on that, so first off, vacations for us with a five-year-old for the last two years have been miserable. Like it's horrible. Like this is, it's, it's a lie. You don't get to enjoy yourself with a child. Uh, if you don't have kids, understand this. And if you do have kids, you understand this. And so we were like going, why is it we're so miserable when we come back from vacation every year? And so we tried a different approach. First off, Suzanne and I decided to no longer call it vacation, at least for now. Uh, that is a lie. If you have children, you don't get to have a vacation. You're just taking a trip. You're moving things from one place to another place, and you're taking this person who um, isn't fully formed in their frontal lobe. That means they're going to try to kill themselves regularly if you don't watch them. So this person, if you get around elements that are very powerful, like most powerful elements, like the ocean, like you have to watch them, right? And they, they want to do things like when she was two or three, Charlotte wanted to eat sand or like put it in places. You're like, nope, can't do that, you know, or like swallow sunscreen and whatever else. So this year we didn't do that, um, but, uh, and, but we were trying to run into the ocean and challenge it. Uh, we're, Suzanne and I joke, we're pretty convinced that she is going to be an Enneagram 8, which just means that she's just going to challenge everything in life and try to punch it in the face. Um, and, uh, and she tried to do that with the ocean a lot. It was great. Like I finally, we finally found something that could match her energy level. Um, so we're like two thirds of the world's in front of you and you're running and trying to fight it. So, um, so that was helpful. It was helpful to have a different perspective. So any, any young parents, there you go. That's just some free advice. Just don't call it a vacation. But by doing that, we did allow ourselves like some spaces when we could kind of tag in and tag out like, oh, now this part gets to be like a mini vacation. You know, you get to lounge or read or, or whatever else you, you want to do. And I always find that when I am going out and getting away from my life, it still follows me there. That's the other reason why vacation's a lie. Like you really don't get to vacate your life because you know everything's waiting for you when you get back. And as much as you might want to get away from that or numb yourself from it, it still keeps popping up. And so I was, I was determined to not just try to vacate my whole life, but go, okay, what's happening back in Memphis and, and how do I feel about that? And here's what I realized. I feel really lonely back in Memphis. And you're like, well, that's not the way to start a sermon this morning, you know? But I'm like, I'm really lonely in Memphis. Like, I, I found myself going, um, life doesn't work as well as I want it to. 
I find that as many, there's a lot more things that don't work than do. I find there's more people against that are for. Um, you know, people have come to me regularly and said, uh, I don't like how you, uh, Robin, or how this church is doing church. And, and what they're saying is, is that we're specifically and intentionally trying to create a space where people from all kind of perspectives can come together. That's why if you go to our website and go to our belief section, the only beliefs you'll find that we post there uh, are the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. It's because we're trying to create as much space as possible for people to come together, to learn how to interact, to hear one another. That's an art form. A lot of people um, find that when they go to church, their decisions of what they should believe has been made for them. But when we look at something as big as the Bible, it's kind of hard, like there's lots of people that try to go, well, this is it, but then what do you do with all the other people that say, no, that's not it, this is it? Well, let's just kind of form echo chambers and get away from one another. And what we're trying to do here is create a space where people get to be in tension. And people say to me, I don't like that this is a space of tension. And, my, and I say to them, I don't like it either. Like, I don't, I don't want this. Like, I, I'd rather have a space where everybody just kind of goes with what I think. And I don't like saying up front, hey, question everything I say and poke holes in it and be a good Berean. I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. And I find that when I kind of got away from the space, I was going, I don't want to come back. And so I had a therapy appointment lined up, and which was good for me. And I was just talking about that and just going, I think I just, I think my greatest need in life is just to know that someone's on my side, that someone is with me, someone's for me. Now, I'm risking doing this, and some of you are super codependent right now and going, oh, no, I need to go take care of Robin after this, Okay. <laughs> That's some of us in this room. Uh, others of you are saying, yes, I am against you. Um, but either way, <laughs> you don't have to be codependent in that way. I'm just kind of sharing myself here and just wanted to start off that I, I think that that's what we're going to find some in this passage. Personally, I, didn't, I even told Suzanne yesterday, I was like, I don't think I want to preach anymore. <laughs> She's like, you kind of still need to preach. That's important. And so I find this morning, this is more for me than it is for you. And I'm just going to kind of talk out loud about what I've gotten out of this for me this week, and maybe it'll be for you as well, okay? So that said, I want us to start in the first few verses, chapter one there, and we'll just kind of break it down and kind of give a little sketch of, of what's happening here. Verse one says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, we've spent about four weeks in chapter 17. Uh, because chapter 17 in Acts has a lot going on in it. And if, you, if you've missed it and weren't able to hear those messages from Drew and Jamin, I'd encourage you to go back and, and check it out in the podcast. Um, but what we're finding is that Paul's on these journeys going to different cities, and he always does a first stop in synagogues because he's Jewish. And he wants this message of the Christ to be something that his Jewish brothers and sisters take a hold of. And that's always his approach. And he finds it keeps getting a lot of pushback, pushback. Um, and so he spends time in, time in Athens, and Athens was a, a very uh, thought-progressive city. This is where all the major thoughts would come together and things would be wrestled out. And, and so Jamin and Drew both talked about that for the last two weeks, so I won't go into that again. But from all, like, from we can tell, Paul had a good time there. It, it seems like it was almost refreshing for him to not have all these people come against him. 
Like there were some people going, you're crazy, but it's like Paul can deal with people telling him he's crazy. He gets tired of people trying to beat him up, right? And so he's in Athens, and he, he comes out of it, and he decides to go to Corinth. And as his practice, when he, he goes to Corinth, he starts trying to find fellow believers, people maybe who have this God message already. And so verse 2, it says, there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And so wherever Paul went, he would do his trade. His, his side hustle was like talking about the gospel. His, his like full-time hustle was making tents. And so working with his hands and, and building and, and making craft. And so you would have like these marketplaces and you would meet people there. And so he met this couple who had had to flee from, from Italy. And it's because they had to flee from all the racism and bigotry from Claudius. The, the tension against Christians now is starting, but specifically even against Jews. Uh, and so they're having to get away because someone is against. Just keep that in mind. Already the story is showing that, that Aquila and Priscilla are having to get away from a person who's abusive and against. And in that, they meet Paul, and they start this relationship. Now, what's interesting that we know about Priscilla and Aquila, they're kind of the first power couple in the Bible, right? Like, they're this couple that they start moving around with Paul and doing some of their own work and egalitarian, and pastoring, and leading, and these apostolic gifts, and, um, and so Paul's meeting them, and, and they're like becoming buddies, and Paul's finding some comfort and connection there, which is really important that we can find those kind of people in life, that those people that we can connect with, those people who aren't against us, those people who are with us, and who are for us. And so we find that they're spending time together, and then it said, every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, we know that Paul loved his people. He was, he was able to code switch. He was Jewish, but he also uh, was a Roman citizen. And so, but he loved his Jewish brothers and sisters and wanted them to have this message of the Christ. Um, as someone who was an up-and-coming leader within the Jewish church before his uh, enlightenment with Christ, if you will, um, as someone who is that way, he has a desire for Jewish people to understand the bigness of Christ, to not miss the Messiah, this person that they had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years to come and bring redemption and flourishing. He's like, I don't want you to miss this. And so what he's finding is, is that he's trying to reason and persuade with them. And I love this word in Greek for reason. I mean, it, you probably could have defined it this way without it, but just in case, it's uh, a mingling of thoughts with yourself and others. Like, that's what he's doing. When he shows up somewhere, he's mingling thoughts that he's had with himself with others. A lot of times when we think of speaking the truth of Christ, it's, all right, let's kind of drop the hammer and let's let people know how it is and what it is, what to think and believe, and there's no gray space. Well, a lot of times we just want to do that, though, because we're afraid that, like, we don't want to have it wrong. And what Paul's willing to do is step into, step into spaces and, like, mingle thoughts that he's had with other people. 
and in turn persuade. Because like we talk about this at Christ City, to have a 90-10 approach. 90%, listen, you can be 90% sure of whatever you want to be sure of. Just have 10% that you may be wrong. Like be willing to have that. It's also called humility. And so Paul is willing to step into space and he's convinced of this. This is it. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is, this is what has changed my life, the Messiah we've been waiting for. And he's wanting to persuade them, as you would, with anything that you're so convinced of, whether it's a coffee shop or a particular dish you've had. Listen, there is a burrito truck. Let me tell you about this. There's this burrito truck at Belvedere and Madison. Don't sleep on this, friends, all right? Now, they're kind of mean on the phone. Don't let that scare you away, all right? But, like, they have these, like, little mini burritos. They wrap it in tinfoil, and, like, goodness gracious. Like, I, I got it, and I ate the first one on the way home, and by the time I got home, I texted all my friends and said, go to this burrito truck. Go do it. It's literally called the burrito truck. So there you go. But, like, you want people to enjoy, like, the things you enjoy to, to buy into. It's really natural. And so what we find, though, is that, Paul is doing this, but then things turn bad fast. Look at verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, this is important. I just want us to camp here for, for a minute. Paul's desire to mingle thoughts, persuade them, was to think wider about who the Christ could be. Paul wasn't trying to come against them. He was trying to, he was trying to like, push for something, okay? Even when we see this, we see this in, in, in Acts 17. Paul doesn't step into Acts 17 and say to everybody, you got it all wrong, you heathens and pagans. Like Paul spends time walking around the city, observing like the gods and the cultural norms. He finds this one spot that says to a God unknown, and he goes, hey, can I bring some definition to this God that's unknown? It's a beautiful approach. Paul doesn't step into places trying to be against thoughts or against people against their beliefs. He's just pushing for something. Now, this is important. Because let me tell you something. If you get this, you'll get a lot. We tend to live as people who are against things and not for things. I had a mentor years ago in my early 20s. He said to me, Robin, he asked me a question. What's the difference between someone who is pro-life or anti-abortion? Now, my response was nothing. And he goes, well, no, it's, it's everything. You see, one person stands in line as this person who is carrying this baby, very scared. You don't know their story. You don't know what's going on. But one person stands in line on the outside with signs saying, you're a bad person. You better not do this. You're a killer. How dare you? That's anti-abortion. The other stands at the door with the person walking up, not knowing their story yet, not knowing what this person has gone through, doesn't know if this is a choice they made or if they were raped or something was done to them. And they stand at the door and they simply say, I'm so sorry. What do you need? Do you want to go inside together? Or do you want to go to my house or go to a coffee shop and sit down and talk? 
See, one is against something and one is for something. This is, this is where Christians miss it so much and why it's so gross within this caricature of evangelical culture happening in our nation right now, even with these abortion laws that are being enforced. Like, first off, anyone who says that they are pro-life, well, that's for babies and women and everything. That's not just exclusively to a right side. Anyone who would even say they're pro-choice, they're still pro-life, right? And if you were to talk to a person who is pro-choice, they're not saying, you know what I want? I want babies dead. No. Like there's much more nuance in the conversation. And what happens is, is that it's, we have this kind of thing being fueled by a conservative part of America that maybe doesn't speak for the whole of conservatives in America. And we find that it becomes more damaging to the church than helpful. It shuts off conversations. And I think what we're finding here is that these Jewish people and Claudius are people who are against things in life. They don't know how to be for things in life. It's not a very attractive thing when you're against things in life. And Paul is experiencing something where he feels something and people are against him. Now, let me ask you this. Can you relate to being for something while others around you are against things? Can you just relate to that for a minute? Are there things in your life that you find you want to be for something? You want to be for this thing of beauty to be expressed or this idea or this reality or whatever it may be even about Christ, and that those against you are more concerned of like being against something. Well, then those people actually may end up being more harmful than helpful because this is what's important to see here. It says that these Jewish people became oppressive against him and abusive. People who are against things will always be more naturally inclined to be abusive. That's just the way it is. If your life is spent on tilt being against something and defining it of what it shouldn't be, then you will run the risk of being an abusive person. But people who are for things find that they're they're actually closer to things that give life. That's what encourages us for a minute to think about that. Like, what do you spend your time being against? And trust me, this is not just a conservative thing. This is also a left-side liberal thing as well. Some of you in this room who are conservatives, you're scared to death to get around someone who's progressive because they're just going to preach you a message about how you're getting everything wrong and how you're this horrible, bigoted person. Because this person who has left a side on the right side that says you have to have all these exact thoughts, they've just stayed on the same coin but different sides. And we run the risk so many times of not knowing even how to have a conversation because we're so against things and not for things. And so this is what Paul is running into. Can you relate to that? Let's read on here. Now, Paul has a response to these people. He says, your blood be on your own heads, which I love. Like, I'm done. I'm done with you. Um, and honestly, he probably was somewhere between rage and passion in saying that. Right? If, if you have ever been around a person who is abusive in your life, now let me just say up front, the church, the big C church, we have been horrible at helping people see abuse in their lives and have boundaries around abusive people in your life. And I'll be really clear up front. 
If you never learn to have boundaries with abusive people, and here's how you know who abusive people are. People who are harmful, who purposely want to hurt, who, who purposely want to be antagonistic and not simply just wrestle. And listen, this happens in all kinds of relationships. It happens in work relationships. It happens in uh, just your friendships. Uh, it happens in, within kind of family ecosystems, family of origin. And what we say as many times is, well, I'll give that person benefit of the doubt. Like, I can't have boundaries with fill in the blank, you know, uncle, parent, whoever else, because it's family. I got to kind of stay in that relationship. And what we do is at the church, we go, you know what? Like, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then be the love of Christ to that person. And you know what Paul says to that? Nope. Not going to do it anymore. I don't care how much this person talks about how much they love God and their Yahweh is not going to do it. I am done being in an abusive relationship with this person. And listen, a lot of times we don't want to get out of those abusive relationships because, like, if it's your job, there's financial ties to it. If it's a friend, there's relational ties to it. If it's a family member, there's relational and financial ties to it. Like, we don't want to have boundaries. And listen, there's a difference between boundaries and borders. Like, boundaries are a four-foot fence in your backyard that you have up, right? And people can walk by, and they can see you, they can talk to you. And you simply say to that person, hey, if you want to come into this backyard, just go through that access gate right there. Would love to sit down and talk more. But then what we find is that people who come from abusive relationships, many times what they what they do is they have like PTSD. Then anybody who even sniffs of being hurtful in their life, they want to do whatever they can to get away from that person. But there's a difference between hurt and harm. Listen, it hurts you to go work out. Am I right? It hurts, doesn't it? Right? Like you literally, when, if you work with weights, you know you're literally tearing your body, right? Like, you're, you are tearing your muscles apart, and what you're trying to do is give them space in between to, like, rebuild to get stronger. Like, it literally hurts to, like, eat well. As much as I love the burrito truck, I can't have the burrito truck all the time, right? Like, I got to make choices from time to time to, like, not do the, the big burrito. I got to do the mini burrito, right? Like, I can't do that every time either. It hurts making good decisions in life. But what happens is, is that when we come out of these abusive relationships and start having boundaries, if we're not careful, we miss out on other relationships that even though they may trigger us to some degree, that doesn't mean that that's that person. Like, sometimes I have to say to a person, I'm not your dad. Like, I know there's a bigger presence here, and I know that, like, you just kind of see scary Iranian, right? Like, but I'm like, I'm not your dad. Like, I'm not, against, I'm not against you. I'm not a part of your family or the story. I am a concentric circle. I'm not the problem. We got to talk about this, and you got to go deeper into your, your, your story. Go get some good therapy. But, like, don't miss out on this relationship here. That just because something is challenging doesn't mean that it's wrong. So Paul's in this predicament, though, where he's going, I'm done with these abusive relationships. And I love what it says. It says that uh, he went next door like, I love it. He's like, it's almost like he steps out of the synagogue, walks 10 feet over, and then into like Titus Justice's house, 
which what a great name, Titus Justice, like the worshiper. Anyway, so he goes to this guy's name's Titus's house because you know what? Sometimes you just need to break from abusive spaces. Like you need to know, like listen, if you're in a work situation right now that's abusive and that you can't get out of it because there's financial ties, like you have a boss that actually is abusive, first report the boss and go through HR, do what you gotta do. But then second, you need to know that you can have spaces to go to that are safe, where people are for you. Like, cheers, like, maybe without the drunkards. You know, like, everybody knows your name, but, like, without drinking too much. But whatever, like, you need spaces to go to where you know that people aren't against you. But here's what's interesting, because wherever you go, there you are. Look what happens next. Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believed in the Lord, And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Think about this. Paul leaves the synagogue. The synagogue leader's name is is Christus. Crispus. He goes over to Titus' house. And like Crispus sneaks over to Titus' house because he wants some more of that gospel good news, right? And so like Crispus, the synagogue leader, which was over the abusive space where Paul was, slips over to Titus' house. He gets like, like, transformed by this message, his whole house, and now because Crispus is doing it, others want to do it. And Paul's like, I just want to get away from all you people. Like, I just, I just want to be away from it all. And, you, and it doesn't tell us here, so I'm just going to kind of midrash this for a minute, right? Because what that means is kind of read between the lines in a, in a Jewish form. It doesn't tell us that Paul was excited or like upset to see Crispus. We just know that Crispus goes over to Titus' place as well and decides to get more of this message. Now, here's what's interesting. This person, Crispus, was over this whole environment that was abusive to Paul, was letting things happen. And yet, he wants more. Now, listen, if we're not careful when we're having boundaries, we will create borders, And we will miss out on people that may be hurtful but not harmful that could even bring more life to our life. Do you hear that? So how do you know? Go to therapy. (laughs) Read books about boundaries. No, like, how do you know? You You have to be in relationships. Sometimes I have to tell a person, even tell myself, you were... You were um, harmed, you were stunted, you were hurt, whatever it may be, in relationship. Like, if you think about that person in your past that you have all this hurt around, well, then that person probably was a part of stunting some kind of emotional growth in your life or spiritual growth. But here's what's interesting. If you are harmed in relationships, you can only heal in relationships, Your healing will not come by you finding a cave, learning a few moves, and then come out when you're ready. At some point in time, you have to risk relationship. You have to risk, like, can we try this again? Or can I give this person a shot? It's a really scary place to be. Some of you, maybe even within, like, dating or marriage or whatever else, it's been very difficult for you because I don't want to give this person a shot. It could be an old friendship where this person was one way and now they've changed. And you're like, I don't want to give it a shot. But if you were harmed in relationships, you can only heal in relationships. That's how the brain is set up. 
So we find that Paul here has this person who is a part of this harmful place come and now like this person's life is different. And you have to wonder if Paul's going, I'm sick and tired of this. And so we have in verse 9 and 10, it says um, that Paul has a dream. I'm sorry, a vision at night. And here's what the vision is. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I'm with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So far in this series, meta-series on Acts, we found since chapter 9, Paul just gets his tail beat all the time. Like he, like literally, metaphorically, like this guy is struggling through life. And at some point in time, you kind of just get to a place where you're saying, I'm tired of life not working. I'm tired of, like, relationships not working. I'm tired of feeling like everybody's against me. I'm tired of feeling like Sisyphus. You know, Sisyphus was the, the Greek tragedy of the person every day who would push the rock up the hill, but he would never get to the top of the hill. And a lot of us find ourselves, we feel like we're like Sisyphus, that we're always pushing this huge boulder up the hill. And then once the day ends, you stop and the boulder goes down to the hill. And now you're left with the boulder at the bottom of the hill. So you try to keep pushing it up again. And at some point in time, you're like, I'm tired of going uphill. Like, can you relate to that? Like, can you relate to being tired of just life not working? And can you relate to being tired of relationships not working? Can you relate to like being tired of just feeling like things and people are against you? Because that's where Paul is. Paul's tired of it. And he wants to check out. And so when God shows up to him, when the Christ shows up to him, he says, first off, do not be afraid. He's not telling him to not have fear. He's actually saying here in the Greek is, do not live with terror. Do not let terror seize you. Do not be controlled by this thing that has at work time and again. Because I am with you. Listen, if you are a person who deals with the fact that life is against you and it's not working, that job has not worked, that career has not worked, that relationship, and especially your marriage has not worked, if you are that person, I want you to know that the Bible gets you. Because the Bible was written by people whose lives did not work, whose relationships did not work. And they had to draw boundaries, and they had to figure things out, and they had to seek out wisdom, and they couldn't stay in these abusive atmospheres, relationships. But then here's the thing you just got to have, though. When life's against you at some point in time, it's someone for you. Because you can't go alive, you can't go throughout your life loaning it. Like, just isolating. Because that's where the worst things happen. You know, the addictive patterns and behaviors, the things that become so self-destructive. Like I said, if you're harmed in relationships, you have to be healed through relationships. And here's what's interesting that, that God is saying, that the Christ is saying here to Paul. I'm with you. I'm for you. And there are others as well that you don't even know about. We've used this before, uh, this, this line from Richard Rohr several times, but I keep using it because 
honestly, sometimes you just have to really ponder on something for a long time before it sets in. And here's the line. If God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. If God is Trinity, so if this thing is real, this Trinity, and the way that we know this Trinity is real is that the face of the Trinity shows up in the person and reality of Jesus. And so if Jesus is the true representation of this God, then that means it is a benevolent universe. Which you would say right now, if you're experiencing life not working, you would say, nope, that's not true. It's not benevolent. I have evidence of how it's not benevolent. I have divorces in my life. I have loss of relationships. I have whatever it may be, fill in the blank, wreckage of how life has not worked. My life is Job, right? And yet, if Jesus is the face of this Trinity, then it means it's a benevolent universe. Because if, if God is that sovereign, that means that he is also that loving. And then what I love, it says next, God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and is on our side. Two things you need in life if life is not working. One is this. You need to know that people are with you. And I don't mean giving you permission to do whatever it is you want to do. That's not what a safe space is. A safe space isn't where everybody just kind of group thinks together and says, well, this is the conclusion is, that's just called an echo chamber. A safe space is when you're able to be with someone who accepts you for who you are, but wants you to become who you could be. That's what a great safe space is. It's a person who's for you, who who's trying to be a part of the narratives that God is weaving together for your life. Like, you need that in your life. Do you have that? Do you have people who are for you? And if you don't, what are you willing to do to go find that? They could be in this room. There are people in this room like, let me tell you this. If you're at Christ City, you are a for person and not against person. If you've stuck with us this long, you buy into being for things and not against things. Because there are people in this room who are not like you. What we don't do, though, is take a risk of getting to know those people. So therefore, we just kind of stay eternally isolated. But here's what I'd say. What does it mean for you to take a chance at relationship? To meet people who actually like like to be for you. You know, C.S. Lewis said, the way that you know you've made a friend is when you say, oh, you too? Like friendship isn't built around affinities. It's built around pain, common pain, and struggle, and stories and narratives. That's how friendships are built. So do you need people who are for you? But the second thing you gotta have is, you gotta have a God who's for you. Now, here's, here's what I'm really clear about. However you pray, if you close your eyes, if you kind of get to a meditative state, if you kind of just show up here and throw your hands up, here's my question. Do you have a God who's for you? If you spend your time questioning if God is for you, then I just want to just kind of be blunt and say, you may not be worshiping the God of the Bible. 
you may still be like projecting on family systems or wherever you came from and whatever it may be and experiences you've had. If you don't have a God who is for you, then you don't actually have like the God of Scripture because we just said that if Jesus is the face of God, it's a benevolent world. And that means that God is for you and with you, that God's not someone to be terrified of, but is the ground of being and on your side. I just want to challenge you. You might need to reconsider who it is you're praying to. Sometimes when I sit down with a person and they talk about like the, how they approach God and how like this feel like God's against them and always kind of beating them down, I'll do things like, well, maybe quit praying to that God. Like it's not working, is it? Like I, maybe you're praying to Zeus. I don't know. Like, like ask, are you Zeus? Like, I don't know. Like, and you're like, this is weird, Robin. No, that's weird. It's weird to try to be in relationship with a God that you're not sure is for you. That's weird. That's abusive. Is God for you? Do you know that your God is for you? And if not, are you willing to ask more questions? Are you willing to be around people who go, like, do you have a God that's for you? Yes, I do. Oh, tell me about how you understand God. And I'm not trying to say make up your own Mickey Mouse God. What I am trying to say is that God is for you. And that don't you want that? And don't you want to be able to experientially at your core know that? And how I love how this passage ends is there are people that you don't know, Paul, who are like on your side. And we have no evidence that Gallio is a believer. But here's what I love. If you spend your life always getting away from life and always trying to vacate it, if you spend your life always trying to be against things, never for things, you might be missing people who could be for you that you don't even know. Like God's got you, which I've said this before in a message, we all need a I got you person in our life. Like you ever been to a restaurant and you forgot your like, you forgot your, uh, your wallet, which like I forgot my wallet. So like whoever I go to lunch with, I hope you got me today, all right? But like we always need like, oh, I got you, I got that. Oh, I'm, I'm, I don't have five bucks. I got, now listen, if you never have the money, then something's wrong, all right? You're doing that on purpose. But like all of us need like a I got you person. Do you have an I got you God? Do you have I got you people in your life? Paul does. And I think we're meant to as well. Because that's the only way we're gonna stick on this journey together. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we come before you and your table, there's no better spot, there's no better place to have our hearts and minds reminded that you were for us better than communion. Because it's in this space that we realize that the God of the universe is for us and on our side that the God of the universe loves us. And that's been shown through you, Jesus, the Christ. So now as we come before your table, may our hearts be reminded and our souls be glad that you are for us and you are with us and that there are others even in this city, even in this congregation that are for us. In your name we pray, amen.